0: Blog Talk Radio <laughs>
1: A moment in the sun and live from the cafe. Besides being Pennsylvania's capital city, Harrisburg is home to many neighborhoods. One of the oldest sections of the city is Shypoke, which has gone uh, much as the Susquehanna River has done. Shypoke has survived changing times, storms, and makeovers. It is now the subject of a new book with tongue, I would like to say firmly in cheek, Shite Poke, Venice on the Susquehanna. Its author, Dr. Michael Barton, is a professor emeritus of American Studies and Social Science at Penn State Harrisburg, and he joins us today. Dr. Barton, welcome aboard. Thanks, Tori. Well, let's begin. What prompted you to write this rather humorous uh, tale of, of shite poke?
0: Well, I lived in the neighborhood, and years ago I started writing something about it uh, because I felt there were a lot of interesting stories there, and I taught ethnography at Penn State Harrisburg, uh, so I had some familiarity with it, at least the way it was usually conducted, and uh, I wanted to try this out. I liked to write. Um, I'd done other books, and uh, this was going to be my work of uh, faction, half fact and half fiction. <laughs> And I enjoyed doing it uh, very much, finally got it finished, to a point where I was satisfied with it, or at least satisfied enough. So uh, um, that's how it started and how it ended. In fact, the title didn't come to me until the very last minute, virtually. Um, I had another title that I was using, and then I thought, just a second, why don't I go back to what the neighborhood was called years and years ago, Shitepoke? Old timers will tell you that it was shitepoke, and I said, "Okay, that'll put a little, uh, a little, oh, discourtesy, <laughs> or maybe maverick style in the book, to call it shitepoke instead of shy-poke. And uh, so we'll mm-hmm. go with that. And I always planned on uh, sort of hiding my identity a little bit, not entirely, of course. It's uh, a mix, as I said, of both fact and fiction. So I don't want people to take it too seriously, but it's not entirely made up, let's put it that way. I mean, I had a a base of operations, which was the neighborhood, and there are chapters that I try to make as true as I possibly can, and other chapters that are really made up, and I don't want people to take them too seriously. It was an opportunity for me to do a little creative writing, as well as to do a little ethnographic writing. Ethnography is a two-bit word uh, that simply means a cultural description. Anthropologists write ethnographies, uh, and when they Mm -hmm. compare communities and cultures with one another, uh, they're doing their job. We call that ethnology. Uh, And there's this strong Mm -hmm. narrative tradition in ethnography, so I thought I would take advantage of that. I didn't want to make it all history because... Ah, oh, there's so much history in Shaipoak. We'll never know it all because so much of it took place, so to speak, in secret. Um, it's the history of families and kids and parents and everyday activity. And you have to uh, sort of make that up. You can't recover it entirely. So I used ethnography to give me a chance to deal with facts that I think are just interesting and then a chance to imagine. Uh, what might have happened in a 100 years ago or 50 years ago. So that's how it got to start. And as I said, I worked on it. Oh, I shudder to think how many years I put into this because I had other things to do, wrote other books. Uh, But finally this got finished. I said I better do something with this.
1: Mm -hmm. Now the actual neighborhood of Shitepok has a very long history. Can you give us like a – is there a short version thereof? Because it is one of the oldest communities, right?
0: Well, you'll have to buy the book, Tory. <laughs> Just kidding.
1: Uh, I have it, it in front of uh,
0: me. <laughs> okay. It starts back in the, the 1850s, roughly. Um, Harrisburg's a pretty old city, um, and mm. a lot of stuff went on there. You know, the background that uh, John Harris needed a place to cross the river and Built a little sort of house fortress there, and uh, the Indians gave him trouble and so forth. Um, so Shaipook used to be a collection of of sheds and uh, lumber yards, and even a place where they kept chickens and probably hogs too. Um, it did not have the uh, what shall I say, the most pleasant reputation in the city. Uh, There was a bar there. Later, there was a school in the neighborhood. Uh, There are some nice brick houses there that uh, were quite substantial. And then there are some wooden houses that are less substantial. Uh, It was always a working-class neighborhood, uh, although there were some professionals that lived there back in the old days. And then after the floods in 1936 and 1972, it got gentrified. Um, by the work of uh, some local groups and by the work of the federal government and the state government, they decided let's don't just bulldoze this neighborhood. And there were neighbors who didn't want it bulldozed either. So they came in there and put in some sweat equity, fixed up some of the houses that had been flooded, especially after the 72 flood. Uh, They got the federal government to put in brick sidewalks and such things as that. And by the time they were done, people said, boy, this is a great place to live. Uh, You get this (laughs) wonderful view of the river. Uh, You've got a variety of people living here. Um, You can walk to work. It's convenient. Um, You can enjoy some uh, historic architecture, although it's not fancy schmancy. Um, So uh, it's it's a story that's got change right in the middle of it. Uh, changed from this kind of neighborhood to that kind of neighborhood. And uh, now I guess we'll sit on the edge of our seat and see what happens to it. Um, we, uh, we've had floods. Uh, there have been many floods over the years. Uh, and that oftentimes seemed to provoke people either to move or to fix up a place or something like that. Um, flood insurance is getting more and more expensive. Uh, i don't think the federal government is as prepared to subsidize the renewal of the neighborhood as they used to, um, so I, i'm not sure what shypoke 's history will will be, and i 'm not sure what its future will be um, it's um, it's an unfinished story that's for sure
1: mm-hmm. well you've told quite a bit of the story from the um, from the nom de plume of a guy named Feeney Tungsten. Now, where did that name come from? Is that like an artigo? Or... <laughs> I
0: just made that up. Uh, I thought Feeney <laughs> was a fun name to say, and Tungsten struck me as unusual, so I said I'll call myself Feeney Tungsten. Uh, I'm trying to think of some <laughs> authors who have been very creative about their invention of names. I think Mark Twain did that, and uh, um, Dickens. There was that
1: Not to compare one? myself with yeah. Twain or Dickens. Well, as I was reading some of this, I, I had to go back into my my remnants of US history that I got in high school and I came across the, the humorist his name was David Ross Locke, but his uh, name was Petroleum Nasby.
0: Oh yes, and yes, yes.
1: Wrote some hilarious uh things about Abraham Lincoln and uh the, at the, during the time of the Civil War, and I, when I was looking at the names, and I started to read some of this, this was a little more of a, a little more restrained version. But I, I those are the kind of things I, I would think of, and uh, that just seemed to hit me.
0: Yeah, well, that was fun. That was inventive work, uh, and it didn't take too long. It was just usually a couple of words and uh, I was uh, satisfied with those terms. Sometimes they're very ordinary names when I don't want to tell jokes or make fun, Um, and then other times when I want to make fun or tell jokes, I I think of uh, curious names that might be humorous names, so um, Mm -hmm. don't take those too seriously, and when we say it's comic, (laughs) it is, I hope, uh, in certain chapters, but other chapters I would say are almost deadly serious. They're Um, quite, shall I say, besides serious again, Uh, they're sober chapters. Uh, Mm -hmm. The chapter on death is pretty sober, and the chapter on emotions is pretty sober. Because even while I was making fun a little bit, not of the people or of the neighborhood, but even while I was having some fun writing, um, I wanted to to deal with the reality of Shaipoq. Uh, I wanted to try to understand it in the past and and in the present. So those are serious parts of the book, and I would stand behind them, even if they don't really stand for anybody in particular. uh, I say at the beginning of the book, uh, this is the past and the present, as it could have happened. Uh, And I'm I'm serious about those assertions. I, I looked around and tried to understand the people as best I could. We lived there for about eight years, um, so Mm -hmm. I had some experience with it, and I interviewed people, so to speak, or at least asked them questions as often as I could. I met some folks who used to live there back in the 50s and 60s when it had not been rehabilitated or gentrified yet. So I tried to Mm -hmm. keep track of those facts, those memories. Uh, It's not as if this is an utterly unique neighborhood. Um, It isn't. Uh, Maybe there are hundreds, thousands of shy folks in America, so to speak. Um, But when you understand that neighborhood, I think you understand our past better, whether it's in Harrisburg or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, whatever. There's a terrific amount of interesting history and everyday life in these neighborhoods in america uh i mean there are there are collections of people who immigrated here people who grew up here people who lived and died here uh you never run out of good stories i think because there are interesting people everywhere
1: mm-hmm. you know that is interesting too because it's um i i grew up in new england and when I think of the very small town that I grew up in, which is still pretty much a small town and a lot of the ones that were around me, each one had their own character. And when, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we would, and I'm from Vermont, so we would jokingly look to the West to Burlington and, and call that. And that was like another planet for many of us. And when we went Uh. there, we felt we were in the big city and, Um, (laughs) when I was growing up, I think it was only a hundred thousand people at the time, but I could be wrong. And yet I remembered, you know, traveling through the city to different areas and it would be like the North end of Burlington had its own odd, unique character from, you know, from South Burlington. And then there was, and it wasn't just the schools or anything like that. There were real characters in the neighborhoods and the neighborhoods had their own. So I think, I, I think I understand where you're coming from is, and the history of each one is so unique, and then you kind of stick them together like Legos or something.
0: Mhm, mhm. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was not a small town, um but it was right. not New York City either and Then, in the summers, I would go to my grandmother's town, which was Moville, Iowa, uh which just mm-hmm. sounds tiny and rather local, doesn't it? And there I <laughs> stuck my neck out and looked around and listened and and that gave me an appreciation for small towns or uh, small communities that had uh, um, people who weren't small. They were interesting, uh, full-blooded, lifelike people. And uh, that was that was interesting. I've been struck by the fact that, that when kids grow up in a neighborhood, uh, they're not growing up in the city. They're growing up in an area maybe... Three blocks by three blocks. I mean, that's their world. Uh, When they go to the end of the neighborhood, uh, they don't know what's across the street oftentimes. So all of us, I think, live in these sort of miniature communities for a while just because it's too much work to walk very far. And uh, we get to know people, and (laughs) we see the variety, the relative variety that's there, and we see the relative uniformity that's there, too, the patterns. Uh, People are interesting. It's that simple.
1: Yeah, and it's it's very interesting to me because it's like I mean I've lived in I lived in Boston for about ten years and I lived in various neighborhoods again the same thing, here in Harrisburg I mean I only I only moved here about two and a half years ago and it, it's so unique because it's like I have to climb on my I would have to climb on my roof to look to see the Susquehanna, but I can go all I have to do as I explained to someone who's never been here I said all I need to do is go down the hill a few blocks, go down between 6th and 7th Street, a few blocks, and suddenly here's Uptown, and then down a little more, and there's Old Uptown, and I'm suddenly, Mm -hmm. here I am at the river. And it's Mm -hmm. like, um, it's inspired me to write something based on this neighborhood and based on this area, because it was just, um, that very thing struck me of, this neighborhood where I live is so unique, and I've only been here a short time, and then Mm -hmm. I go down a little further, and suddenly here are different people. And then here's some more cool people. And again, um, I guess it leads me to the question that I wanted to ask. Um, Do you think Feeney Tunston was trying to discover something he did not already know when he was doing all of this?
0: I think he knew something about the community, but still wanted to know more. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was trying to, to be down to earth and commonsensical. At the same time, he saw that he had a kind of professional obligation to be something of an ethnographer, that chapter headings in the book are uh, chapter headings you might find in, a, in an academic professional ethnography, at least as they were written many years ago. Uh, so he's, he's in between being a neighbor and being a professional uh, sort of local anthropologist of a sort. And it was fun trying to deal with that. Um, I I wanted to give a little pretense of academic uh, seriousness at the same time as I wanted to enjoy writing the book. Um, And I wanted to give some pleasure, if I could, uh, to people reading the book. So there's a Mm -hmm. kind of um, Janice-faced experience in the book uh, where I'm being Mm -hmm. serious one minute and uh, jovial, I hope, the next. And then, as I said, there are serious parts, too.
1: Yes. And that's the thing I noted. You you divided it into chapters. Shaipog is an examination of different topics, uh uh values, politics, sex, the arts. Now, how did how did you match the characters up? In values we have this very interesting character, Clarence, and then you go down to some of the others and you have all these other interesting folks. How did they how did they get locked together? <laughs>
0: Well, I just made them up. In a way, they were stimulated (laughs) by people I knew in the neighborhood. But I had certain things I wanted to say and certain sort of experiments I wanted to try with prose. And uh, I put together what made sense and what felt good, at least felt good to me. I mean, the book is a kind of self-indulgent work. Uh, It wasn't so much to. (laughs) Well, it was not only to explain the neighborhood, as I thought it could be explained, but it was a project for me. It gave me a chance to to do some writing and and not to be held up to uh, judges who were going to say, oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to give you tenure for this. Uh, I mean, academics have to play that game, publish and perish uh, most of the time. And I wanted a project uh, that didn't have to carry that burden. I wanted to write something. Uh, as a matter of fact, I did send a manuscript to um, an anthropological press, and uh, they wrote back, well, interesting, but I think it's a one-joke book. <laughs> and I don't mm. think they wanted to hold their profession up to ridicule uh, by actually uh, – uh, publishing it or standing behind it, uh, there is a branch of of anthropology, uh, humanistic ethnography, humanistic anthropology, mm-hmm. that does encourage um, prose. It even encourages fiction of a sort, uh, if it can be, should we say, ethnographically true, uh, and they give prizes. Uh, for outstanding works of fiction written by professional ethnographers. So uh, this book is not unique in that respect, um, but they have pretty high standards apparently because they uh, they they weren't going to put their name on, on my project here, and I figured uh, if this gets published, it's because I want to publish it, not because somebody else is going to give me permission. That was part of the reason for doing the book. It gave me a chance to to do what I wanted to do without having to come up with lots of footnotes um, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, academic charts. Uh, it was yeah. uh, an act of uh, of uh, irresponsibility in a way.
1: <laughs> well, looking at looking at your your previous work, there's there's many serious works. Your uh, Moving Road, an illustrated history of Greater Harrisburg, and also um, The one I'm very interested in, uh, A History of Jazz in Central Pennsylvania, Um, was it possible that maybe they they knew who you were before and thought, did he really write this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. People knew I was interested in the city, Um, and it's not as if they saw me as the ultimate expert. I mean, I think the the expert on, on Harrisburg was Paul Beers and one of the books I mm-hmm. did was to republish a lot of Paul's columns from the newspaper. I really enjoyed doing that, and I felt an obligation to do that because um, Paul's probably the, the best we ever had, uh, and I, I stood behind his work. Um, and there are other books I've done that were pretty seriously academic, shall we say, even if I tried to not uh, make the prose something you would joke on uh, or have difficulty <laughs> pronouncing. Um, so I've I've done a lot of different kinds of books about Harrisburg. The jazz book, I was really just sort of the the fellow at the head of the table because people wrote parts of that book and contributed to that book, and I helped put it all together, and uh, we had a fellow who wanted to publish the book, and uh, so, in fact, I took the title from him, and so I was really um, a sort of ringleader or um, um, circus master for some of those books and others i've done quite a bit of editing and i've done those books just because i think the public needs to have that material to enjoy we're planning a couple of other projects right now and i think it's just because unless we do this those original manuscripts are going to be disappeared and ignored, and I want to bring them back mm-hmm. to life, so to speak, stuff that was written maybe a uh, 100 years ago uh, that is still mm-hmm. really interesting and, and is, deserves, I think, to survive, and we'll be able to do that either by convincing uh, another publisher to do it or by just self-publishing and uh, mm-hmm. throwing caution and, and, and savings to the wind, and just saying, "Here it is, if you want it, enjoy it. uh I think I did my duty in restoring this work um because Harrisburg is uh just full of history, I suppose Mechanicsburg is too, and Moville and Middletown and whatnot but uh, I just I felt a kind of obligation to this city to to talk about it right now Harrisburg, mm-hmm. I think i can't speak with perfect confidence Harrisburg may be one of the most told about cities um, among historians and ethnographers around today there's at Messiah college there's a fellow who's doing a terrific digital history of Harrisburg enabling you to put your your cursor on just about any spot on the city's map and it'll tell you who owned that property who was there he and his students because it's a student project um they they do small histories about the city uh they uh, uh they'll never run out of work to do because now we have tools that enable us to get down really deep into the fine details of city history uh and i'm terribly interested in how they do their work, Um, and Digital Harrisburg, uh, I think, sets a new standard for local history. Uh, Another word for local history is called microhistory. It has Mm -hmm. a a background in Europe, and it means, in effect, finding something large in something small. All these big isms and T-I-O-Ns finally come down to earth in the experience of somebody who grew up there or who lived there or who built a house there or something like that. When you stay at the level of generalization and vagueness, it's very easy to lose the reader, you know, in just a couple of pages. But if you
1: mm-hmm.
0: burrow down deep uh, into a neighborhood, a house, what have you, you can find something large in something small. That's where history and the big movements finally land on earth is the experience of somebody who went through that larger process. I mean, let's face it, that's why movies work. They all have characters. It's kind of tough to write a movie or a novel about a group or a people. I mean, you have to finally name names and identify faces and look at places where people lived. And then all of a sudden it becomes interesting because it's something you can relate to. So I think Mm -hmm. that's our ultimate goal with so much of this history of Harrisburg or any other community is to make it understandable to people by explaining um, who lived there and what they did and how you can identify with them it's uh, it 's mm-hmm. a humanistic challenge as well as an intellectual
1: challenge mm-hmm. well i 'll say this about Schaitpok many of the characters were were you, you, you brought out the comic side, and there were certain there were certain people that if I walked into that neighborhood, I think I would probably recognize some of them. And um, now, were these characters? These aren't all just one person here, one person there. Did you did you possibly mix characters or personalities or quirks together?
0: Well, I got some ideas for characters out of the people I knew in the neighborhood. But I want to insist that nobody is uh, is exploited or used in this book. Uh, don't look for names. Don't look for faces. Don't say, "Oh, that's so and so," and and that's what's his right. name uh there's none of that going on i really i use the book as a kind of platform i use the neighborhood as a platform uh for doing some uh creative writing i hope um so mm-hmm. people make a mistake if they look for smidgens of truthfulness in the book i mean when i describe the neighborhood and such things uh there i'm telling truth as i understand it maybe that's a dirty trick for an author to leave the reader puzzled I mean is that a real person or is that just somebody he made up but that's the way I decided to do it and we'll see if it works um uh I don't need the money so I don't have to sell thousands of copies um but don't don't look for anybody in particular in the book uh even though they may read it with uh uh insisting oh I know who that is uh, nobody in particular um, is described uh, in any particular chapter. Um, mm-hmm. They're really acts of, uh, of uh, writerly imagination.
1: <laughs> well, you certainly had some fun with a lot of those folks, and um, it, I certainly got plenty of chuckles throughout it. Are there any of the characters, like, Are any was, was there any character or two or three that stood out for you that just became your favorite ones to, to write the chapter about, write the story about?
0: Oh, golly. I, I was interested in all of them. I had fun with all of them. Uh, I've got some – I was careful about – a word I don't like. I was careful about diversity uh, simply because mm-hmm. you didn't want to write about the same person all the time. Uh, I mean, I've got yep. elderly folks there. I've got uh, religious folks. I've got irreligious folks. I've got younger people. I've got people who have lived in the neighborhood forever and, and people who are newcomers. Um, I, I just thought that gave me more opportunity uh, to be inventive, to be imaginative. Uh, even though I didn't I didn't start with a chart saying, okay, now where's my white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, and where's my elderly <laughs> Catholic or, you know, anything like that. That kind of quota system, you know, I want nothing to do with. On the other hand, if everybody were the same, um, that wouldn't be much fun. It wouldn't be very interesting either. So I did look for different kinds of people. That was an inspiration of the neighborhood because it's uh, – oh, I'd say except for race and probably certain kinds of ethnicity, uh, it's a somewhat variegated place. There are different kinds of people who have lived there. Um, Young families have moved in and moved out. Uh, The elderly have been there for years and years and years and will stay there forever. Um, Mm -hmm. For a for a two-block by four-block neighborhood, roughly speaking, um, there's a pretty good bit of variety there. Some people may laugh that I call that variety, but to me it was variety. And uh, I think the people who live there um, enjoy that. Um, they know that there are uh, not all carbon copies of of people who live in the neighborhood. They, uh, they like the fact that there are folks who sit on their steps uh, at night and, uh, you know, say hi to the neighbors who walk past. Um, yeah. We've got a playground in the neighborhood uh, where young families would congregate and watch their kids swing on the swings or uh, otherwise have fun and play on the hill. Um, they like that. Uh, the city's been good. To the neighborhood, I'll have to say that. Um, the police drive through every now and then. Uh, I don't know, watching us or watching strangers. Uh, we'll see.
1: Um, <laughs> they,
0: uh, uh, and the city takes good care of Shypoke. Um, they try to limit the traffic that goes through it. Um, they know it's uh, an attraction for the city. Uh, the newspaper has published how many photographs of Shai over the years. I wouldn't count. Uh, my own family has been photographed in the neighborhood, um, and we, we saved those pictures and, and uh, put them up on the wall. Um, it is, because you go right past it when you enter the city on 2nd Street, um, it is uh, charming. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's not perfect um, And it's got its ups and downs And as I said With flood insurance costs going way up um, And uh, other problems Appearing from time to time um, I, You can't say it's heaven on earth uh, But it's not hell on well, earth either.
1: No, and it's, and it's interesting Because it's not much different From any other town um, From the descriptions of the book Which are at times most humorous I think anybody that picks it up will probably identify with it in terms of their own hometown or where they live I now so. and think, hey, I live, I live here. I already know this guy. Yeah. It's like I almost like I know it. I hope And that so. was interesting, too. The other point there, too, is you talked about um, how the younger families have moved into the neighborhoods and – They're just they're they're you know the younger generation is taking its place and it's like that cycle that continues for towns and that cycle needs to continue or the town dies out and uh, I guess go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say the neighborhood has some traditions that bring everybody together too. There's a flea market um, where, Mm -hmm. in a sense, families just exchange toys with one another. Uh, Their kids sell this plastic hut or that. Uh, that piece of Star Wars paraphernalia. Uh, We have the flea market there once a year, usually in July. Um, And then people come down to the neighborhood and fill it up um, for fireworks displays that they can see over the river or from downtown. Um, The neighborhood has some traditions besides flooding. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the people (laughs) like that. It's enjoyable. Um, They're pretty good about keeping up their property if they can. Um, and uh, uh, it uh, it's a neighborhood where you can feel safe, I think, and just walking around and seeing seeing friends and introducing yourself to newcomers and um, it works. Maybe you can make a TV series out of it um someday. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the most exciting series, but I guess it's not supposed to be.
1: Well, the one thing that is interesting that's always been interesting to me, um, I've noticed this in my own writings, but I've noticed it mostly in my reading of fiction as I was growing up and also in history. Um, the concept of change is something that always has intrigued me because it is inevitable, and yet there, there of course, is a very human fear of change and a fear of, of the now. Um, I detected just a little in terms of, of many of the characters of Shipepuk, where they would talk about the way things used to be and the way things once were. I feel sometimes that people cling a little bit too much to that, but it's um, there's. Do you feel that that maybe there is a lack of acceptance, and maybe this is a bigger question: is there a lack of acceptance of change, or is it just the fear, and then eventually you sort of get pulled into it and you realize? You're still here. I don't know. I, don't, I think that's, that's a question I, I really have never been able to answer. Yeah. Uh,
0: I've been interested in the way people use the word recently,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and they talk mm-hmm. about some people, being, some people being afraid of change. Well, if I would lived right. in Germany in 1934, 36, I'd be afraid of change. That's a change mm-hmm. I wouldn't have liked very much. Uh, and I think right. we can resist changes if we think they're uh, not going to be good for us. Uh, positive change, uh, uh, you know, that's debatable. Uh, depends on who thinks it's positive. Um, I I get nostalgic about neighborhoods. Um, I go back to a high school reunion or something like that. I have mixed feelings. You know, whatever happened to that building or whatever happened to that, uh, that street or that drugstore or that grocery store? And you wince a bit if it was a place you liked and you think the replacement for it – is not as attractive. Um, I think we're allowed to have mixed feelings about change. I don't think we have to welcome every change or dispute every change, for that matter. It right. uh, depends on what it is. Um, and I think we're called upon, whether we want to or not, we're called upon to, to live with the change or to cope with it one way or another, um, mm-hmm. or maybe to move out of the neighborhood or or to to move to another city or something like that because we don't like what's happening. Um, I feel sorry for city governments because they have to deal with this. I mean, they want to improve the city, but when they change it or improve it by their measures, um, they may upset a lot of other people who liked it the way it was. And and I think that kind of stability – uh, is good for a community. If it were constantly changing, I think people would feel very uneasy. If it never changed, uh, they might think they were stuck in a time machine or something like that. Um, so you, you play that by ear, and and you hope you've made the right choice so that you can enjoy the changes that were positive for you and and maybe turn around the changes that haven't been so good. Um, when you think about old European or old Asian communities that have been that way for, oh, my golly, forever. Um, I mean, I'm stunned always when I go overseas because I say, you know, I came from a town where the oldest house was built in 1880. (laughs) And in some of these places, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 1880s, uh, the youngest place they have, maybe the first one went up in 1540 or something like that. Um, In America, uh, we're advantaged or disadvantaged by the fact that it's still a pretty young country Uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons we like to go overseas is because we see stuff that's deeply historic Um, and uh, maybe we of course it's the best stuff remaining it's not as if we're getting the community as it actually existed four or five hundred years ago that might be an ugly place with uh, streets full of sewage and no bathrooms or anything like that but Uh, We have interesting ways, I think, of dealing uh, with the ancient past, preserving some of it, destroying other parts of it, uh, so that you really can shape a community uh, with about four or five hundred years of raw material. Uh, In America, we don't have so much of that raw material. Uh, We're always um, building something new, and some people have good feelings about it. Some people have bad feelings. Um, I'm inclined to, although I'm not devoted to this opinion. I'm inclined to think that uh, some of the modern American architecture or the commercial architecture of maybe 50 years ago um, doesn't make this a very attractive place. Uh, It's not as if it's been tested by time so that people say, oh, that's a lovely building or that's a lovely neighborhood. Let's keep it. Let's restore it. Uh, I think in America, we don't often have that privilege of keeping the very best of the past, because our past is is not terribly deep. I mean, we may be the oldest democracy, uh, but we're certainly not the oldest architecture. Uh, I spent time mm-hmm. living in in Copenhagen and when I was a Fulbright professor and i 'm walking yes. past stuff that is you know older than i 'll ever be and then at the same time uh, in Denmark, they mix it with modern architecture that 's about as modern as one could imagine, and they blend it very attractively, I think. Um, we don't have so many opportunities like that in the United States. Uh, nothing is that old. I think the oldest mm-hmm. residential street in America is Elfrith's Alley in Philadelphia, and I think that dates from the uh, 17th century. Um, but it's not as if – there are no castles in America. Yeah. If there are castles in America, it's some kind of odd event. Uh, Somebody was trying to build a castle. uh, Sometimes they brought castles over here and rebuilt them. But uh, Mm -hmm. there's no ancient history to speak of uh, in this country, unless you're talking about Native American peoples or or something like that, or the mound builders. Um, America's a pretty new place, and it's going to remain new for quite a while. I think that's, in a sounds way, why people like to go overseas, see something really old.
1: Me, yes, it sounds to me like um, our technique or our art of, in terms of architecture, hasn't really caught up yet. It's like we've we've still got a long way to go before we recognize what we have. And then, as you say, the new yeah. builders come in, and the, the new visionaries and that sort of thing. So, no, that's that that. that, that did you just reminded me it's like that's true we are a young country right? we have not mm-hmm. aged that much at least not yet well you know that leads me into your history now um you talked a little bit about growing up in nebraska tell us about your history tell us about where you grew up and you know what did you read what were you doing so that that leads us to where we are now
0: why mm, talk about americanism uh I grew up in Lincoln and I lived on washington street uh so i couldn't i couldn't escape uh American history, so to speak uh, My parents had chosen the house very well it was in an ordinary middle-class house in a middle-class neighborhood. But it was only a couple of blocks from a very big park where I used to go all the time and just kind of play by myself or you'd take a friend over there and we'd climb trees or swing on the swings or something like that. Uh, My doctor's office was a block away. My dentist was two blocks away. There was a grocery store very close by. So you could get by without moving very much in that neighborhood. And I still remember these gorgeous elm trees that used to hang over the street. Uh, eventually, all of them died because of Dutch elm disease, and they had to replace them, I think, with with uh, oak trees. Uh, but in any case, it was a very comforting neighborhood. And uh, in mm-hmm. fact, my wife is there right now for a high school reunion. And I reminded her, I said, go to your old neighborhood and drive through it and see how it makes you feel. Anytime I've gone back there, I drive through my old neighborhood, and uh, I see change, but I see a little constancy at the same time. Um, and I I grew up on a good street in a good neighborhood. Uh, I always felt safe. I always had friends there to play with, uh, and yet there was still a downtown where you could go and enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. The State Fair was held in Lincoln, and that was always a big deal. see these big... Yeah. Uh, Poland-China hogs, I think they were called, that were as big as a Volkswagen. Um, I felt lucky to grow up uh, in Lincoln. And I felt lucky that my kids were able to grow up in Chiapok. Uh They had lots of friends just about a half a block away. Uh, and they had that mm-hmm. playground. And, and they had the river they could look at, if not swim in. Um, it was pretty safe from cars. I didn't have to worry about their uh, stepping across at the wrong time in the street. Um, it was, It was. they still appreciated it. It was a good neighborhood to grow up in. As I said, it was mm-hmm. attractive. It was safe. It was jovial, um, a variety of kinds of people there. Um, so Nebraska was good to me, and uh, and I think Shippoak was good for my kids. Um, when I did move back east, uh I, I came to a very different place and i i grew to appreciate it for what it was um but there's something about uh, the plains the middle west nebraska that is uh, um satisfying i discovered when i was getting older uh that my ancestors had come here oh several hundred years ago um in the 1640s they started in Uh, Well, they started in Salem, Massachusetts, which turned out to be a bad choice because a couple of my aunts got hanged there for alleged witchcraft. I still think they were innocent. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, then they moved west. They moved to uh, New York, Massachusetts. Uh, They moved to uh, Illinois and Iowa. So I wound up in Nebraska after traveling across half the country, or at least my ancestors had. And uh, that's given me a different feeling, knowing that uh, um, that I've got roots uh, that go pretty deep for a pretty long time. And I'd like to do more genealogy sometime because that's a real act of imagination, imagining how they lived and how they felt and what they did and that sort of thing. I had. I had ancestors in the Revolution, in the Civil War, World War One, World War II, uh, and that gives you a feeling of, um, of solidity of a sort to think that you weren't just plopped down here accidentally, but that uh, every person – Matter of fact, if you want to get very imaginative, you know, I go back to some cave, uh, maybe in southern France or some other place in Africa. Uh, All of us uh, have a history that is um, Mm -hmm. endless. I mean, there haven't been that many virgin births lately, so we can't say that we just (laughs) came out of nowhere. Uh, We all have this remarkable history uh, that goes back thousands of years. And you wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what were those people like? And every one of us is equal in the sense that we have that really deep uh, biography. Uh, and you wonder sometimes what those people looked like and what they did and how they traveled. I mean, talk about an exciting narrative is just to follow your your genes, your DNA for goodness knows how long. Uh, and it had to be real. You know it exists. You just don't know all of it yet. I think that's why uh, Ancestry.com and all these other genealogy services nowadays uh, seem to be so popular. I mean, they they support television advertising almost, and uh, so well, it's not just the yeah. local; it's it's the historic that's exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. I am I, I am as curious now about asking about uh, your education, your reading, what. What were you reading growing up? What led you into education and what inspired you to pick up and write? Uh, you've given some of that background, but I'd like to know what's dig into you a little bit more.
0: Well, I I read the little house books. Uh I enjoyed them a great deal. Uh, I read Mm -hmm. the girl detective books, maybe I shouldn't say that, Uh, but I read uh, Judy Bolton and Nancy Drew, yeah, they were were always exciting and interesting. My grandmother used to take me down when I'd go to Moville, Iowa for the summers, or at least it seemed like the whole summer, but it was probably only a couple of weeks. Grandma would take me down to the Moville library, and I'd always check out some biographies there. Uh, usually of politicians and soldiers, and I'd, I'd take those back to Grandma's house and sit in the rocking chair and read those. Uh, I can't say that uh, I was constantly reading or writing, for that matter. Uh, I have a grandson who reads everything and and really keeps himself occupied reading all the time. I'm very happy for that. Um, But later in life, I had this joke uh, that if ever I want to read a good book, I'll write one. Uh, So I don't (laughs) read, even though I'm a professor. Even though I'm a professor, I don't read as much as I should I mean there's so much reading material out there nowadays uh i read a lot of magazine articles and popular stuff but i don't usually pick up an 800 page tome and uh, just start reading from page one to the end um i uh there's there's enough there nowadays to to keep us uh i suppose alert and informed um i was always a pretty competent student i like that i I got some enjoyment and recognition out of that. Uh and I never dreamed of being anything else but a but a professor. I mean really my life has been a failure of imagination. <laughs> I never thought that I was going to be an astronaut um or uh, uh a general or you know an inventor anything like that. Um I had good time in school. So I figured I might as well stay in school. Uh, So like a lot of professors, (laughs) there's a sense in which, you know, I never graduated. I just stayed in the same setting for, you know, uh, most of my young and my adult life. And uh, uh, I was never really entertained by any other possibilities. I just always wanted to be a teacher. And uh, always wanted to be involved with words, uh, reading or perhaps writing, and uh, trying to understand the world that I lived in. Um, that's enough to keep you puzzled, is what's going on here? <laughs> Especially nowadays, you wonder, what in the world is going on? Uh, and, and trying to make really, sense out of that.
1: It must really now, is, uh, over the years that you've been a professor and have been teaching and all of that, um, do today's students seem as imaginative and as, um, I mean, I've, from the young folks I work with or have been around, I see imagination still. I see creativity, and I see, it, I see it manifesting in ways that I sometimes scratch my head at, but I think, okay, they're just doing it differently than what we did. It, it must still be exciting to go in with, with, these young, with the young folks.
0: Well, I wish I understood them well enough, but I don't think I do, even though I've been around young people for oh, I taught for forty three years um, mm-hmm. I was a student for the other years uh, i'm seventy five now and uh, and I'm not sure what's going on in schoolrooms uh, i I don't know how serious they are uh, or how unserious they are. maybe they're scared to death, most of all, by the cost of tuition. Uh, I'm just not sure. Sometimes I'm depressed about the state of our education. And then I say to myself, oh, you're just being an old fuddy-duddy, you know, just because they bring their (laughs) phones in, just because they fall asleep at the high point of your lecture. I mean, that doesn't mean schooling is a failure. It doesn't mean you're a failure. Uh, Maybe... Students may know more about school than teachers do uh, because students Mm -hmm. are hanging around one another and talking to one another, and uh, there may be an opinion about you that you've never imagined but is quite commonplace among the students. Um, We need to do uh, more research on just what happens when you go to school. Um, does it change you instantly or does it change you eventually because you say well now I'm a now I'm a college graduate or a high school graduate so I have to be a different kind of person Now I have to act like I'm educated and maybe that's when they you know maybe that's when education really takes is after you <laughs> leave school and define yourself differently as an educated person um, maybe the last people to ask about education are teachers uh, because the only the only... Teachers they ever watch are themselves. I mean, one thing mm. teachers don't do is visit other teachers very often to see what they're doing, uh, and how they're doing, so you can compare yourself to them. Um, I was just thinking this morning before our, before our conversation. Um, you know, golly, what are what are we? doing out there look how much money we're spending uh is it a guarantee that your know, schooling is going to get you what you want a job or status or or whatever work americans have invested in education i think as nobody else ever has and and i wonder you know what the cost has been and what the value has been for all that money we've spent. I mean, I wouldn't want to abolish schooling, you know, just because I'm a little cynical about it. Um, but, you know, I wonder if if Europeans who don't put everybody in college um, finally think they've made the right choice, and those Americans, um, they'll send anything to school. I mean, you know, we have dog mm-hmm. training classes, for God's sake. Even our even our animals <laughs> can learn, we say. Um uh, if there weren't schooling, I suppose there'd be a great loss of hope in this country, because we think that we can perfect our lives and our country and get exactly what we want by going to school. And maybe that was a very useful dream in the past, but now you're spending zillions of dollars uh, to get that school. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I'm cynical about universities and, and what they're willing to charge. And I've talked to deans about this, and they say, well, nowadays, we have to compete. Uh, You know, we can't offer them some bedraggled campus with no gymnasiums and no athletic teams and say, okay, now sit down and study. I mean, you probably won't succeed competitively if that's your attitude. So they'll say, nowadays, we have to have all these um, accompaniments, all these
1: accoutrements. Mm.
0: Uh, that make it a nice place to come to school, I mean, you show kids that can 't don 't you um because yes. they 're going to live there for a while and and the kids want to enjoy it and uh, but boy, I think we oh, we have faith is, in education, it, and we spend scads of money on it, and I wonder if we 're investing wisely i don 't know, and maybe I should know because i you question. know I made my living at it for years.
1: Well, it becomes an interesting question because um, I my small college in Maine that I began going to 35 years ago, um, I was just feeling fortunate that I could get into any college. And um, because I was a very indifferent and very undisciplined student in high school, I learned my discipline in college. But for me, it was also, I just remember you know i it you know when i went back for my 30th reunion not that long ago i was amazed at how big the school had become and how ah, how many yeah. more thi- you know, how many more beautiful buildings there were and how much more money had been put into the school and
0: yeah oh, yes. i it
1: was a fantastic place to go and and then one of my one of my friends said, do you know how much it now costs? And they told me, and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and I was like, I could, and I thought, oh, God, if, if I told my dad how much it costs today, I uh, think my uh, father would have a heart attack. Well, it's
0: the largest and, consumer debt we have in this country now, student loans.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think this, it's bigger it, than
0: the auto industry
1: the big question i think though eventually there's a point i think there's a tipping point somewhere where it's going to pull back i think it's a part of those cycles it's we've we've got to a point where the cost is going to have to come down some changes are going to have to be made and it may also be changes at the level of the university or the college or whatever they wish to call it of okay how are we going to provide a solid education Are we going – You know, and maybe it's, okay, let's not show the campus. Maybe we need to go into the classrooms and say, look, if if this is what you want to be or if this is what you think you want to do, check out what we've got. I think that was more what happened to me, and I guess I was lucky because um, I was a communications student for lack of wanting to know what I really wanted to be. I had no idea. I thought I wanted to write. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And when I was shown a small little beat-up radio station – And then I saw the studio that was being built, and they told us, we're going to have an FM signal. We're going to have a tower that goes right into a city. We're going to have a lot of people listening to us. And I thought, oh, that could be fun. (laughs) (laughs) And it it turned out to be, and I'll tell you what, it turned out to be, well, it turned out to be incredible fun. Well, listen, in the the final moments that we have, uh, Doctor, um, tell us very briefly about what some of your upcoming projects are. You alluded to those earlier.
0: Well, I'm working on a book right now uh, that would be an anthology of Civil War memoirs. That's sort of my second field, or maybe my first field, besides local history, is Civil War Studies. And I got into that. Uh, almost accidentally, I, I studied a lot of Civil War soldiers' diaries and letters when I was a graduate student, and I was mm-hmm. doing that so I could say something about the American people in the middle of the 19th century. But then because I used the word Civil War so much, uh, people mistook me for a Civil War historian. I shouldn't say that, because uh, there might be still people wanting to hear what I have to say about the Civil War, um, So I'm working on a book of Civil War memoirs with a colleague. Uh, I've got an autobiography and a bunch of travel letters from a very noted and productive Harrisburger named uh, E.Z. Wallauer. And we're going to try to get that republished so that people can see uh, how businessmen really worked in this city uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. He was an amazing guy. He did Oh, so much stuff. And he really didn't have a, a higher education to do that. Um, he just did it. I mean, he founded a newspaper. He, he ran an electrical company. Uh, he, uh, there wasn't a field in which he wasn't involved, it seems, in the city. He's really one of the main drivers of the growth of Harrisburg in the 20th century, and not too many people know about him. Well, thank goodness, he wrote an autobiography uh, that talked about how he did his work. And then he wrote these travel letters uh, in the 1920s and 30s that are very interesting. So we're looking to to republish uh, the writings of E.Z. Wallauer. Um, and I, I've got a couple of other projects here that uh, that I hope I can finish someday um, about national character, which has always been my deepest interest, uh, sort of comparing peoples with one another without relying on uh, gross generalizations or prejudice or mm-hmm. what have you. Um right. So I, I've got enough here to keep me awake, to keep me up at night, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'll keep I'll keep working on that. Maybe someday even some more. Uh, ethnographic fiction, or faux-ethnography, as I've called it. Uh, I've even wondered about writing an autobiography, uh, if I had anything to say that was useful about my own life. Um, I've, I've played with a couple of titles. Uh, one of them would be In Lincoln on Washington. Uh, that would be Growing Up uh, and What I Went Through. Um, or I've thought about uh, another title for my life, which would be called Little Brother, um and cuz my big brother uh really had a lot to do with me and uh, so maybe mm-hmm. i could write about him and me and we'd call it little brother um not that anybody would want right. to read this stuff but it it gives me something to do um something well, to then, think
1: about well there you have it Our guest has been Dr. Michael Barton, Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Social Science at Penn State Harrisburg. The book is called Shite Poke on Brown Posey Press. Dr. Barton, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating.
0: Oh, thank you. I appreciated it very much, Tori.
1: You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the books A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Café, and also the upcoming book Searching for Roy Buchanan, which is set for later this fall. This is the BookSpeak Network.